Hello again, dear listener. I'm speaking to you now because you have probably correctly assumed that this is the start of the show. Welcome to it. Welcome to find a previously recorded evening of storytelling and otherwise. This episode took place on September 24th, 2018 at the Lido, which is on the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, or Vancouver, BC. You'll be hearing some of the excellent lineup of writers and comedians we had that night, including Anna Cran, Raul Fernandez, Sue Jung, and Josh Edwards. And throughout this episode, you'll hear music from the Badge Epoch Ensemble you can find on Bandcamp, and the track we started the show with today is called Badge Theme. And we have a live show at the Lido coming up on November 26th that you can come and check out if you like, no pressure, but I can safely assume that it's going to be a real nice time. For more info on that, go to afineshow.com or follow us on the social medias at afineshow. Alright, and I'm your host, Cole Nowicki. Let's get on with it. Enjoy the show. Up first, we have a wonderful comedian and human, Anna Cran. love that guy he's like an even more emotional Charlie Brown <laughs> how is everybody doing everybody doing good everybody? I kind of when I ask everybody how they're doing I kind of expected it I kind of expected everybody to just say fine like all in unison like that was the thing here but no <laughs> it's the name of the show you guys no, but I'm doing really good. I got to meet a uh, comedian that I really admire. Uh, I wasn't expecting to see him, so I was like shaking. Uh, and I said, I'm, I'm really sorry to bother you, but uh, I'm a really big fan, and I'm a really big fan of uh, what you do. Just thank you so much for doing what you do, because I, I love it. Uh, and he said, okay. <laughs> uh, but on it, like, I don't blame him. He looked really tired and really busy. Uh, and he had just found somebody breaking into his house. Uh, <laughs> great guy. Does not press charges or nothing. His new couch looks great from his closet. <laughs> My boss saw me do stand-up, apparently. Like, he called me into his office, and he said, you're really funny. Like, also, this is my regular job, like... Just in my regular day, my boss just called me into his office and I was like, what is this? And he said, I saw your stand-up. You're really funny uh, and it was very impressive, but you talk about shit that nobody knows about. So <laughs> now I'm trying to do sort of more of like a regular classic stand-up kind of thing. Uh, anybody here ever uh, dated anybody? Anybody here ever felt a person before? No? Y'all are very attractive. I know you have. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I dated somebody 
a couple months ago, and he was really great. He was very supportive and very nice, but he confided in me that he was into necrophilia. I know. And, but I mean, it's not a huge deal because A, I'm not a corpse, and B, <laughs> it's necrophilia, so it's like not in my lifetime. Oh, <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> Did somebody just say good one? <laughs> God, all right, okay, okay. I mean, when I first started doing stand-up, I, I legitimately thought it would just be like sad white men in front of brick walls <laughs> talking about how sad they are uh, and abusing amphetamines. <laughs> but there's not much of that anymore, unfortunately. So uh, there's not much amphetamines anymore. So I'm bringing it back. You know you can just bring your own? They don't, I'm, well, okay, I don't anymore because somebody caught me uh, and they, well, the showrunner got all indignant on me. Is like, where did you get a brick wall? <laughs> this whole show is just for that person. People always say, like, I don't care if my art, if people don't understand my art as long as it gets to one person. You're my one person. <laughs> I mean you specifically. <laughs> <laughs> All right, wow. <laughs> you ever look at your notes and you're like, wow, I wish you knew how to read. Uh, <laughs> Just, I'm just reading Far Side comics, really. <laughs> Is anybody here vegan? Just kidding, you're all vegan. I've seen all of you. You're all, um, no, but <laughs> I, um, I've, there's a thing called raw vegan where you're vegan, but you also don't eat cooked foods. I know, it's fucked. Uh, like, I would never. It's fucked, I would never ever do that because I don't have a personal vendetta against my own asshole. It's just impossible. This is just for suspense, I'm, I'm just texting now. Uh, what did I just say, something about vegan assholes? Um, no, I was talking about my asshole. Um, okay, speaking of family, I, uh, my mom, <laughs> apparently me and my mom are both, uh, like, we have a lot in common, like, we don't know how to raise kids, and, <laughs> thank you, uh, <laughs> And apparently we're both bipolar, which is crazy. I can't be bipolar because I'm doing like super good right now. Like super good. Uh, uh, shit. Uh, fuck, I forgot what I was going to say next. Um, no, I haven't bi been bipolar in like two weeks. So I'm good. I'm super good. Uh, and my dad, oh my God, my dad. You know, my fucking dad. You know what I got? For Christmas last year, oh, it was a banner fucking year at the Cran family. I got a carton of cigarettes. 
the old man handed me said, smoke up, Johnny, which is weird because my name's not Johnny. Um, no, what about you, dad? <laughs> what about you? Where's that fucking mic stand? All right, that's enough for me. Thank you very much. Up next is Raul Fernandez. He lives and writes in East Vancouver with his wife and two sons. He sweeps floors, goes to library school, and often has a toy animal or baby sock in his pocket at any given time. His first book of poems is Transmitter and Receiver from Nightwood Editions. Here's Raul. Thank you, Cole. Oh, wow, it's great to be here. Uh, I, can we give another round for Anna? Wasn't that great? Isn't she amazing? Wow. I'm going to bring you guys right back down <laughs> after that. Uh, no, it's, this is my first time reading with uh, comedians, and I'm like super intimidated. I don't, I don't know. It's like you, you guys win over poets all the time. So uh, I'm going to do my best. Um, uh, I'm just going to say, oh, there's other emotions to explore. And, uh, 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 you know, like sadness and, and you know, uh, cryptic. Nonsense is one of those emotions. I don't know. Uh, so I have a kid. I'm gonna read a poem. Uh, actually, this is sort of like like I know there's maybe some improv people here today too, uh, and I I'm terrified of that. But I, I you kind of when you have a a, a, a little toddler, you kind of have to do that because they're they're always on and ready to do improv, um, and so this is something that. My son, who's now six, but we used to do this a bit more when he was three years old. Uh, and uh, the poem's called Tendering. My son says, let's play dog and horse. Says, let's play rabbit and fox. Let's play sheep and bear. It's the same game. He's one of the animals, I'm the other. He says tendering instead of pretending. I don't correct him. We mostly talk about what we will eat. Uh, uh, or he begins with the question, what likes to eat apples? And I say, maybe a parrot? And he says, okay, I'm a parrot. <laughs> I could be doing this with him after checking my email or reading about, so this is sort of in a time a little bit a while ago, but it's still ref re relevant. Uh, I shouldn't in interrupt poems. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. I could be doing this with him after checking my email or reading about Syrian refugees, or looking up a recipe for what I might cook for dinner, based on what we have in the fridge. If I'm tired, I say, this horse is tired, and I get to lie down on the floor and still technically be playing with him. <laughs> if, I'm dis if I'm distractedly checking my phone or staring out into space, he says, are you still a turtle? And I say, yes, I'm still a turtle. <laughs> there there's an ocean on the other side of the room, a mobile of wooden birds above us. I could be just home from work, still in my work shirt with staff on the back, other places where I pretend. Uh, I'm going to skip that line. It's not that good. <laughs> I could be... I'm, I was going to edit this, and then I didn't. I could be a dinosaur or a moray eel. I could be an animal that would, in the wild, cold-bloodedly devour him. Sometimes I might enact this, gnaw softly at the side of his ribs to make him laugh. 
Sometimes he's the predator and claws at me. I let him do this until I don't. He knows what teeth and claws can do, but he doesn't know what guns or war are, not yet. He has a vague idea of poems. He pushes my phone away, says, and I say, sorry, what am I again? And he says, you're a giraffe. Okay, I say, I'm a tired giraffe. And the giraffe folds its long legs and lies down to sleep on the, in the savanna grass under a brief canopy of stars. And the lion roars softly, crawls into the giraffe's back, and sleeps too. Thank you for that awe. You guys are adorable. Um, uh, okay, I'll, I'm like, I got all like self-conscious and I'm like, I guess I have to read all my funny poems. And uh, this one's a little, a little dark, so I'm gonna read it. Um, so I, I, uh, I kind of spent my teenage years in Tawasin. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know if there's any, no, probably not. There's more people from that weird town in Alberta, it seems, in Tawasin. Uh, um, but uh, being there, it's like it's a very like white, straight kind of town, but you find the weird people, and I found the weird people and, and used to hang out with them. Um, and uh, there was one night we were walking around, and uh, there was this guy in a field, and he was just like attacking this tree. Like he was just like, he was like frothing and like attacking it. He was in a bad, bad place. Uh, and there were some friends around him. Some of them were like trying to get him to stop. Some were egging him on. And uh, I just remember being there with my friend and being like, what do you think this is? And, and my, uh, my friend was like, um, it's probably about a girl or something. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably about a girl. Uh, and so uh, I tried to write about that moment particularly, but it was, it was like I couldn't quite get into the, it as a story. So I just took that line and I thought about a girl that's like uh, just like this powerful force that just destroys young men's hearts uh, through the town. Um, and I named her Lydia. Uh, so, and this poem's called After Lydia. Daniel took an axe to a young fir tree in the grove behind the dance school. Trevor immersed himself in a book on the elements of typography. Clive smashed his mother's favorite vase and spent the next week painstakingly gluing the pieces back together. Rob spent all his free time at the gym building a coat of muscle around his sl slender frame. Michael gazed at his drink as if it was a jar of dimly glowing fireflies. Dean listened to an old murder ballad for an entire night, becoming more and more gentle with each repeat. Adam began his fight for the preservation of bird habitat in his community. Spencer bought a beautiful motorcycle that spoke like a lion. Billy gave up smoking. Patrick started. David went on a pilgrimage, the Camino de Santiago. Ian didn't feel anything until he saw the destroyed fir tree in the grove behind the dance school, and then he gasped her name. Uh, yeah, I'm not any of those guys, just so you know. <laughs> I missed that poet. Oh, thank you. Uh, maybe one more, one more poem. Uh, <laughs> if I was, it's probably I'd probably be the murder ballad guy. If I was one of those guys, um, just sad songs. Um, okay, one more poem. Uh, this is uh, 
it's kind of imagining two, two poets uh, and, and they, they live together and they have to decide who gets to write about what. Um, which I, met, I don't know if comedians have that and they're like, that's a bit. And then one of them has to decide who gets that bit. But uh, I like to imagine that. Um, uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you again. And thank you, Cole, uh, for allowing a poet to come up here. Um, um, this is called The Goodnight Skirt. Permission to use that snowball you've been keeping in the freezer since 1998. For a poem, she asks. What else, I say? I'll trade you, she says, for the thing your mom said at the park. What was it? God, that Mallard's being a real douchebag? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Deal, I say. Okay, how about the Korean boy who walks past our house late at night singing Moon River? Oh, you can use that, I say. I wouldn't even know what to do with it. But there is something else. I've been wanting to write about the black skirt we've been using to cover the lovebird's cage, the goodnight skirt. In exchange, I'll let you have our drunken mailman, the tailless tabby, and I'll throw in the broken grandfather clock we found in the forest. One more, she says. Last night, I say, the whole night. She considers for a while, then, okay, that's fair. But I really had something going with that lovebird. All right, I say. Write it anyway. If it's more beautiful than mine, it's yours. Thanks so much, you guys. Now we have another fantastic comedian and human, Sue Jung. Originally from Korea, she's made Vancouver her home for the last 20 years. Here's Sue. Hello, you guys are fine. Get it, get it. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna start my set with the, I say these are like icebreaker kind of jokes. Ready? I see you. I like my penises, like I like my glasses, made of synthetic material. One more. I like my glasses like I like my woman on my face. <laughs> what I'm trying to tell you is that I'm homosexual. Hello. Hello. <laughs> you guys are amazing. Uh, after I came out, my parents didn't speak to me for two years. My overbearing, traditional Christian parents left me alone for two years, you guys. <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> if I had known this, I would have come out much sooner. <sighs> if you have parents like mine, just come out. <laughs> you will definitely get your space. And you don't even have to be gay, either. But you probably want to try gay sex. I heard it's really good. <laughs> I heard. Uh, so, <laughs> thank you, Ryan. <laughs> I know this guy. <laughs> You're doing a great job. 
Uh, so as a good lesbian couple, we have a rescue dog <laughs> named Hugo. Hugo, that's right. <laughs> he is six pound chihuahua. No, actually, that's not right. He is five pound chihuahua with one pound dong. <laughs> he's like this big with this much penis. Uh, he's on proportionally large penis makes him look like he's a five-legged dog. <laughs> he ruins our family photos with his dick all the time, <laughs> including our wedding photos. He also leaves weird penis drag mark all over our hardwood floor. <laughs> the point is, he has a large penis, yeah? <laughs> Despite all of his dong, Hugo is quite shy with other dogs. <laughs> except when he sees large-headed dogs. You see, Hugo is a face fucker. Just like my wife. <laughs> you look like a face fucker also. <laughs> so do you actually. Uh, I mean, of course I love him, and th like I love that he's different and I support him, right? But it raises a question that I don't have an answer to. Like, is my Hugo just conventional and go for the mouth? Or is he going to be adventurous and go for the nose hole? <laughs> or is he going to be kinky and go for the eye socket? I don't know. It is the question of my life right now. If anybody could help me out, please. Like you have a large-headed dog, call me. <laughs> I'm on Facebook. Um, oh, so. I was in bed one night, just about to fall asleep, and all of a sudden, I smell raw asshole. <laughs> like this area. Disgusting, right? Obviously, I had scratched my raw asshole and then rubbed my face with it for whatever reason, right? So I went to the bathroom in shame without touching anything on the way, of course. <laughs> wash my hands, wash my face. And I came back to bed, but the smell still continued. <laughs> Turned out, you guys, it was my dog who was disgusting. He rubbed his gaping asshole all over my pillow. <laughs> so it was me who was disgusting. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan, you're doing a great job. <laughs> so uh, one night my sister called me in panic. She was really scared. She heard some noises around the house and she wanted me to come over. Basically, this bitch wanted me to get murdered first, right? I was already in my robe, so I got in the car and I drove. And that's when I got pulled over. So I'm explaining to the officer what my urgency, I notice his eyes deadly set on my breasts. 
I felt disrespected. I was offended. But then the shallow bitch in me was like, oh my God, I'm not even wearing a bra. <laughs> As he let me go with a warning, he never left the sight of my tits. I was offended, but I was flattered also, and I had to check out the tits that didn't give me no ticket. So what had happened was when my sister called, I was eating kimchi noodle bowl <laughs> in my white robe in the dark. So I had like kimchi sauce all over and dried up noodle bits. Don't worry, you guys. I ate those noodle bits. I'm not going to waste any food. <laughs> uh, you guys are so amazing. Uh, who? I love Vancouver. I've been living here for like the last 20 years. Who's born and raised in Vancouver? Let me hear you. Ooh. How about Canada? Ooh. Yeah, there you go. I love Canada. But I worry about you people. I worry about you people who only grew up in the first world, just like my wife. I mean, there are parks in that, I get it, but privilege makes you weak. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> my wife and I decide to pack an emergency kit. My sweet but weak sauce wife <laughs> packs some Water, dog food, and toilet paper. What the fuck? <laughs> this bitch is not ready. Like, I'm from South Korea where it's been at war with North Korea since 1950s. Like, I am ready. Like, I have been ready for the end of the world like situations, right? So I pack gas mask, <laughs> night vision goggles, and machete. <laughs> this is why I worry. My wife has no idea what emergency looks like. And this is why she's not gonna make it. Only consolation of my sweet but weak sauce wife is that one day my sweet but weak sauce wife's ass will provide me with many, many meals <laughs> when the time comes. On that note, you guys have been so amazing. Thank you so much. Our final performer of the evening was Joshua Edwards, who is the author of several books, including Castles and Islands, Imperial Nostalgias, and photographs taken at one-hour intervals during a walk from Galveston Island to the West Texas town of Marfa, and he translated Maria Baranda's book-length poem, Fictitia. He directs Canarian Books, teaches, and works at bookstores in West Texas and Chicago. Here's Josh. Um, wow, okay, clearly I've wasted my life. This is a, uh, definitely not a good night to go last. Uh, so to psych myself up for this, I was telling myself if I do a really good job, Donald Trump's going to die in his sleep. 
Um, but uh, but really, I think the truth is, if I do a really good job, um, you'll all have nightmares. But uh, so I'm going to end with a, an emotion that hasn't been touched on too much tonight. Although there's been a, some darkness and apocalypse. Um, this is a. I'm going to read two sections from a book um, called "The Exhausted Dream." or a monthly account of the year leading up to the end of the world by Agonistes, Prophet and Fulfiller. Um, there's a couple of kind of funny moments in the parts that I'm going to read, but mostly it's just dark. Uh, so what I, I'm totally fine with, because I, I don't have to compete with too much darkness besides whatever is going out on out there in the night. Um, so it happens in monthly intervals, and I'll begin at the beginning. It's January 21st, 2012. Uh, and this, it's leading up to the end of the Mayan calendar. If you have ever returned from a trip abroad and found your country completely changed, then you know how I have always felt. I once thought it a simple problem of geography, that I was born ten hours late, that the globe had spun beneath my soul too much, and when I did at last descend, I animated an American instead of a nascent whale or someone destined for wealth and greatness overseas. Later, once I had learned that God is dead, but there is a striving and adaptive spirit in all forms of life, I shifted the blame to history, the ugliest story I've ever heard, and one whose gore I can never seem to turn away from. I was born too late or too early, or I shouldn't have ever been born at all. Then I ended up on a sofa and learned about Freud and dreams I didn't ever have. Although most of it seemed phony, the source of my constant discomfort became clear. The world is made by anxious people, made in fits and starts when they are without love. That was and is where I rest my case. Love itself is good for nothing but killing, time, and the desire to make the future into a circumstance to be survived. What remains if thou lovest nothing well? If you said emptiness, then you are wrong. Emptiness itself means well when well wrought, but love not well made is its opposite, which, mind you, is not hate, it is revenge. And so when I looked to the stars and saw only the darkness between them, I knew that our world's time and the heavens should end. I am building a machine that will bring a comet into Congress with the Earth to return the ether to its peaceful anonymity without a subject. I should be much for open war, as if my eldest brother were a cosmonaut. But alas, I have no older brother. In fact, I am a space cadet myself. I'm the world's only real astronaut. I am always moving farther away. I was born an orphan and do become more of an orphan as I grow older. All my years I've spent in this place alone, but for those who made me eat my carrots. From their kitchen, I've heard morality cry out as its contradictions collapse upon mankind. We who used it against one another in our arguments and wars, the belief that death is some cave or hole has led us to use life as a weapon. Only by destroying death's ladder's rungs can we bring eternity back to life. None of us are innocent, and that word itself is evil wherever applied. No, evil is not a strong enough word, for evil has an end, but innocence is an endless loop of hurting people. When you hear someone laughing, is your first impulse not to think they're laughing at you? Defeating the indefensible is youth, Everyone knows how cruel children are. I do not loathe, I only love, as well as any other imperfect lover. 
But love itself is breaking as a boy's voice breaks under maturity's burdens. A girl captures his imagination with her smile. His bicycle seems too small, and his baseball cards turn into paper. Once upended, the world is never free. Still, my love is strong for all waves and groups of people, and for them I raise a glass and toast a way to end our suffering, a way to end it all without murder. If your refrigerator crushed you, would you call it a killer with your last breath? No, you would cry and think of sandwiches. Such is my plan to bring relief to us. Heaven will fall upon the earth, and we will be subsumed into the universe. I've read hundreds of religious texts, 7,000 books of philosophy, and a million pamphlets of poetry. None of them contains an ounce of wisdom. They are merely tired lists of arguments, digressions on beginnings and endings, rules for vanity and birthday parties. The question that we really want answered is what will happen to our precious souls? Such a question can only be answered with a sincere apology, and now only the sky's violence is sincere. I see this end in our future, and now be the prophet and the fulfiller one. Um, so that's him at the beginning. He's, he's kind of a negative kind of character, a little bit upset. Uh, and then uh, as time progresses, spring comes along, he starts to kind of you know, meditate on the, the, uh, the natural forces at work and the human spirit. And, um, and then there's an episode where he, uh, he goes through a toll booth and he sees the woman who's working at the toll booth. Um, I, worked, I used to work at a toll booth at Mount Rainier and that was actually kind of the major part of this trip was going back to Mount Rainier and uh, doing that hike around it um, and seeing the toll booth where I used to work. But anyways, the, he see, meets this woman. He had seen her before. They fall in love, and, uh, and his perspective changes, but he thinks that he's, he's already set into motion um, the end of the world. So he's, he's a little bit upset with himself. Um, so, so I'm going to skip way ahead, uh, and then other things kind of happen. Um, but I'm going to skip ahead to, uh, this is, I think, September 21st. Um. As the best actors move on from TV and leave shows in shambles, viewers bereft, and characters to death or surgery, so do I move beyond my yesterdays into a new life, an acropolis so perfect it seems built to be ruined. Like a swimming pool at noon in summer, the future waits coolly to be entered, but disturbances of satisfaction can overwhelm the impulse of the act. There are plants that die from too much water. Some things are meant to merely be observed, and others are born to be suppliant. I reach out for love without knowing if to love means bliss or merely drunkenness. There are plans that vanish in their planning and dreamers that drown in their ambition. I doubt my senses, I hear smells, I see symbols wherever images should be, a sunbow's arc above a waterfall. As yet, the beachcomber in me believes that beneath the proof of dirt is payment for the labor of creation or love, maybe not the gold doubloon, but a shell with the ocean where a creature should be. For the first time, you hear your lover's voice singing a language you don't understand, and the words you once knew lose their meanings. I am so confused by this new feeling. My greatest fear is I will outlive it. 
Everything seems to be going well, but who knows well when less is nowhere near. There is such a thing as a perfect storm when all the elements of misfortune converge to produce a great disaster. One of the elements must be belief, the others should be time and sacrifice. And they descend on a decent person who stands beside some mean magnetic soul to hide their darkness in another's glow. I'm anxious because my life is good and I will love a world I did destroy. Just as rotten personas made in hate transubstantiate and the tendency of burning to offer upward its ash. While my sweetheart works overtime this week, I have spent my hours alone dismantling the appalling device in my basement. But as I pull it apart, it mocks me, knowing as I do, it has done its work. Millions of miles away, death from above speeds through the solar system, approaching the planet where Mahler wrote his music. It will be a defunct truth that kills me, and the sight of a serpent in the sky will be the final sign the condemned see. If only I had despised the winter instead of the cold itself, I could have found some relief in fashion and designed warm jackets instead of a burning crown. One must be well acquainted with the charms of decorative dishes and warm pies to know the power that a caterwaul at midnight may have over someone lost in chapter nine of Pride and Prejudice, in which Darcy and Elizabeth speak of poetry's relationship to sex. Everyone knows what happens in the end, but the end is just a catastrophe. The good bits are in the complication. Aristotle can be hard to follow, but tragedy is simplified in love. At first, one seems to look at a stranger in a mirror and life is love reversed. Then their reflection proves insubstantial for conversations and convergences. I'm at this moment in my story and have no idea how it will feel to arrive with another at a shrine with meanings both joyous and saturnine. The other day, I went out for pizza with the woman who holds my hand in hers, and the roads of our hunger there diverged. We ordered a large half mushroom, half cheese, so we could our own ways together go. But by the time the waiter brought our food, we had forgotten who once wanted what and feasted without discrimination. The desire to know each other's desire did overwhelm the knowledge of one's own. Transcendent moments become memories, like everything else, and maybe that is an error in the making of the world. What if evolution's fundamental force were not endurance, but amazement? And what if everything already runs zigzag toward heaven, and I am wrong? What if a giraffe stretches out its neck, seeking not fulfillment, but pleasing form? And nature is guided by beauty's voice. Thank you all again. Thanks, Cole. Okay, that's it. We've reached it, the end of the show. Thanks again to all the storytellers, the Badgie Pock Ensemble, the Lido for having us, Matt Crisco for recording us, No Fun Radio for playing us, and you, dear listener, for listening. We'll leave you with Badgie Pock's Galactic Whip. And hold on, this is a ride.